0: welcome everybody to the latest edition of the pound for pound podcast here on the fight game media network this is your host the original great rob silver and today we'll be running down the three biggest fights of this past weekend one occurred Friday night, two occurred Saturday night, another extended question and answer session, and my historical bio on my 16th greatest fighter of the last 45 years, my second favorite fighter of all time, and that is the Ann Arbor, Michigan legend, James Lights Out Tony. But first and foremost, let's go to Friday night. Sonny Edwards, making another defense of his world championship. Ladies and gentlemen, Sonny Edwards, just every time out, every time I see this young man, he impresses me. Because what I love about Sonny Edwards, the IBF flyweight champion of the world, is that he has mastered the science Oh Lord, I hate when that happens. Excuse that—that's my uh, computer giving me a bullshit notification. Anyway, back back to the regular podcast. Sonny Edwards is a master boxer. Sonny Edwards is the definition of hit and don't get hit. And Friday night against the Nicaraguan former world champion, Nick, uh the Nicaraguan um workhorse. The Nicaraguan, I mean, the man's got incredible punching power, stamina. Felix Alvarado is, in my opinion, Sonny Edwards' toughest opponent to date. And Sonny, first six rounds, he shined, moving, utilizing that jab, making Alvarado miss. Now, Alvarado's a tough cookie. Tough, tough, tough fighter. And Alvarado was able to land some significant shots in the second half of the fight. But he had... Lost too many early rounds, and even some of the rounds that he won late could have gone either way because Edwards continued to rely on that jab, and he made Alvarado miss more times than not. Right now, I've got Sonny Edwards as the third-best defensive fighter on the planet in my top three. Number one, of course, Shakur Stevenson. Number two, Devin Haney. And number three, Sonny Edwards. He makes you miss. He makes you miss, and he makes you pay, and he doesn't have to knock you out. People say, oh, he's only got four knockouts in his 19 pro fights. Doesn't matter. I don't care if you don't knock the guy out. The job is to win. The goal is to hit and not get hit. Sonny Edwards does that as well as anybody today in boxing. He impressed the hell out of me every time I see him. And a tough, convincing 12-round decision over a very tough former world champion in the Nicaraguan, Felix Trinidad. Kudos to Sonny Edwards as he continues to impress, continues to add to his legacy. And now he's looking for a major fight between either Julio Cesar Martinez at flyweight or Bam Rodriguez at flyweight or super flyweight. Both those fights would be very, very interesting to uh, see. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, By the way, I said Felix Trinidad. It's Felix Alvarado that uh, (laughs) Sonny Edwards convincingly defeated Saturday night. I mean, Friday night. Now we go to Saturday night. And first off, Montana Love looked horrible montana love was touted as this huge deal (laughs) and at 140 pounds um he was signed for by uh he was signed by eddie hearn eddie hearn signed him And they were making this big deal about Montana Love because he shined fighting a bunch of stiffs on Jake Paul's undercards. So he got signed and he went and fought Journeyman Steve Spark Saturday night. And Sparks was beating his ass. Sparks knocked down Love in the second round. In the fifth round, Sparks Bat, batted Love up and down. And then in the sixth round, and I say this out of frustration, Montana Love and Sparks, he he, he, grabbed, he grabbed Sparks, and they went over the top rope. Referee disqualifies Montana Love. Steve Spark with one of the biggest upsets of the year. And Montana Love got exposed. He's not the great boxer a lot of people thought he was going to become. He gets hit way too often. There's more steak. I mean, there's more sizzle than steak. They thought he was going to be a, a, a viable uh, candidate at 140 against the likes of Regis Progress. <laughs> Jose Cepeda. Josh Taylor no no Montana love back down to the food chain Montana love is now going to be a stepping stone for those looking to win world titles at 140 once again Eddie Hearn has a bust as an American signee at someone he signed to matchroom boxing that's American Devin Haney was the best fighter he had, and he wasted fucking Devin Haney. Devin Haney stepped and said, Bye bye, Eddie. And I'll be talking about the biggest disappointment Eddie Hearn has ever promoted coming up soon. As now, talk about overrated. We're about to talk about an overrated fighter right now who spit the fucking bit. And we're talking about Janabeck. Alam Khanuli who retained his WBO W bogus middleweight championship. And ladies and gentlemen, oh well, I'll talk about that after I I, I review this fight. For the hard the uh, the the I wouldn't call Denzel Bentley a journeyman. He's had a solid career. He only had one loss going into 19 fights coming in, coming into his title opportunity, his bogus title opportunity against Alam Canuli. Uh, Bentley, from the times I've seen him, is no easy, no easy out. Tough uh, British boxer. And he gave Alum Kanuli hell Saturday night. Alum Kanuli was supposed to, oh, he, he's the boogeyman of the 160-pound division. Oh, what? <laughs> Another Eastern European fighter that's got no defense whatsoever, all right. Right up there with the with the, Beck, the bullies. Oh, a lot of these guys are very very overrated. Now, you have some greats. Dimitri Bovol, great Eastern European fighter, has an opportunity to go down as one of the all-time great fighters from that region. Right now, he's top 10. All said and done, he could be battling for number one. Dimitri Boval is that dude. Alam Karnouli will never be on that level. And I mentioned Eddie Hearn earlier. The biggest bust, even bigger than Montana Love, because Montana Love is not as good as people thought he was, but this guy that Eddie Hearn signed years ago and has been unable to put him in with great middleweights, had has Hall of Fame ability, but he's never fought anybody, and he's wasted his entire career fighting stiff after stiff after stiff. Now, I understand, and I'm talking about Demetrius Andrade. Demetrius Andrade, tremendous boxer. He's everything Sonny Edwards is. Gifted. He, definition of hit and not get hit. But for some unspeakable reason, he has been wasted under Eddie Hearn's charge. As Eddie Hearn is his promoter, Eddie Hearn is yet to put Andrade in with somebody as good, if not better, than him. Andrade was supposed to fight Alan Canulli, because Alan Canulli has Andrade's former W Bogus middleweight title. Andrade gave up the belt instead of fighting Alexander, move up to one sixty-eight and didn't fight for that title, and now his career is in limbo. Now he'll talk a lot of shit. Like last week, he what was he said last week? What was the major fight that happened last week? There was a fight last week, and, and uh, Andrade was talking about oh, I would have done this, I would have done that. Demetrius, you're not fighting anybody. When are you ever going to fight again? Now, this will come up in the discussion we have on the Q&A. Andrade has been ducked. There is no denying by both Triple G and Canelo. Triple G flatly refuses to fight Andrade. said so. Didn't want to enter into any discussions with unifying the middleweight title with Andrade. Why? Because this version of Triple G will get his ass kicked. Ladies and gentlemen, if you look at the middleweight division today, a 90-year-old washed-up Triple G, a defensively flawed Ala Kunali, a 70-year-old Erislandi Lara, You have a division, and you got a uh, Charlo who's going to move up, and the twin move up from 154 to 160 after he beats Tim Zoo. And there should be no excuse for either Charlo brother to do, to to dominate the 160 pound division. One guy's looking for a fight with canelo More on that later. Another guy has done his thing as one of the great 154 pound champions of all time, and. He'll be moving up to 160, hopefully to do something. But ladies and gentlemen, this is the worst I've ever seen the middleweight division in my 46 years of watching boxing. Historically, the middleweight division has been second only to the welterweight division in terms of legendary champions. I'll be talking about another great one in my historical bio of James Tony Later on, another great middleweight champion. But you look... When I first started watching boxing in 1977, Carlos Monzón was the middleweight champion of the world and the man I consider the greatest middleweight of all time. 1980, marvelous Marvin Hagler began his seven-year reign as the middleweight champion of the world. He's the second greatest middleweight I've ever seen. Then you had a great era between after Hagler retired, between 1998 and 1994, where you had great middleweight champions like... Mike McCollum, Michael Nunn, Sumbu Kalambe, James Tony, Roy Jones Jr. finished up in 1995 when Bernard Hopkins took over as the IBF middleweight champion. And he's my fifth greatest middleweight of all time. And he dominated until 2005 when he finally lost the title to Jermaine Taylor. Taylor lost to Pavlik. Pavlik lost to Sergio Martinez. Martinez got battered and beaten by Miguel Cotto. And since Cotto beat, Martinez back in 2014, the middleweight division little by little has diminished. Canelo was there for a cup of coffee after he beat uh Miguel Cotto, and then um after he beat Miguel Cotto, and then he f- had the uh, two fights with uh, Triple G at 160. Triple G, in my opinion, is the most overrated middleweight champion in the history of the world. Period. I don't want to hear it. He's not um in my top ten middleweights of all time. Is he a Hall of Famer? He's the first battle Hall of Famer, no doubt. But he didn't even crack my top 45 fighters in the last 45 years because he's never beaten anybody. And as Andre Ward recently stated on Max Unboxing, his people refuse to fight certain people. One of them was Andre Ward. Another one was and is Demetrius Andrade. He refuses to fight Andrade despite the fact that he's a, a, a zone fighter. Andrade's a zone fighter. Even on the own network, you can't get a fight made. Now we go on to the Q&A session. And I want to answer, the first question I want, an, I want to answer is Luigi, Luigi Pelosi's uh, question. Long time listening, I love this this brother. One of the, uh, one of the great boxing gentlemen on, on, on social media. Loved interacting with Luigi, and he always gives me constructive criticism. One thing about Luigi, when he doesn't agree with something I say, he doesn't attack you like a lot of clowns do. Oh, how could you say that? Oh no, he's like, it's like the question he's about to ask. I'm about to it. it he hits, he hits it without being disrespectful. He says it very respectfully, and Luigi goes, "Hi, Rob. I just can't seem to get your ask, Rob Silver. Please answer this. Why are you hating on Canelo for cherry picking? He went to 175 to fight." Baval, sure he lost but the man has cojones, please answer next week Luigi I give Canelo all the credit in the world for moving up to 175 and fighting the best fighter at 175 and Dimitri before Why he why did he fight Baval because great fighters look for great challenges and he went and fought the best at 175 I've got no qualms with that and I predicted Bavall would convincingly beat him. One of the few dudes, I was one of the few dudes that predicted Bavall would beat Canelo because Canelo was the favorite. And you had all these so called boxing experts. Oh, Canelo's going to knock Bavall out. Ladies and gentlemen, when a guy doesn't lose rounds, and Bavall in his entire career might have lost five rounds total in his entire career, doesn't know how to lose. Doesn't know how to lose. And he's a great technician. Everything behind that jab. And Canelo did his damnedest. He put some he put some um bruisings on Dimitri's shoulders. But Dimitri was too big, too quick, too uh too stylistic for the great Canelo Alvarez. And Luigi, I give Canelo all the props in the world. He made my top 45 greatest fighters of all time i've got him amongst the mexican legends of the all the mexican fighters i've ever seen i've got him number two i got him up up above chavez only guy i have above him is the legendary salvador sanchez you know that that'll be a uh tribute podcast that i'll be doing in in, within the next eight weeks is um my historical bio on salvador sanchez greatest mexican fighter i've ever seen greatest featherweight i've ever seen my only qualm with canelo he couldn't he could cherry pick because you know what sugary linda cherry picked muhammad ali cherry picked floyd mayweather cherry picked roy jones jr cherry picked oscar de la hoya cherry picked when you the man when you're the top box office attraction you can cherry pick all you want i ain't got no qualms with that my problem is he's been the undisputed super middleweight champion for almost a year now, and he's yet to face a real fighter at 168. Triple G, 90 years old. We knew n- only the diehard Triple G fans, all the dudes blinded by what they thought was an all-time, 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 all-time great fighter. We're talking top 10 that they were trying to shove down my throats. Right? First HBO then the zone. We knew at, at at ninety years old that Triple G had no shot at beating a prime Canelo and Canelo kicked his ass, did what he wanted to, could have knocked him out, but he took the he took the foot off the off the gas pedal. There are a lot of very good hundred and sixty eight pound fighters. I want to see Canelo fight. Come on, let's he's never Luigi, he's never gonna fight David Benavides. I don't think he's ever gonna fight David Morrell. Um, he doesn't want to fight Andrade cursed him out another guy that's that has refused to fight Andrade he Cursed him out at a press conference Said get the fuck out of here Right? all these ta- 168 as talent galore and Canelo is not looking at any of them That's my problem with him now. I Agree Luigi he could cherry-pick all he wants to in my opinion canelo will never fight another guy on his level i think he's gonna win against less than stellar opposition but maybe he'll prove me wrong in 2023 we'll see we'll see we'll see but uh once again luigi great question as always always a pleasure to chat with you both on social media and with the questions you provide on this podcast nfl sunday ticket is now on youtube and youtube tv Okay, Jesus Silas asked, and I'm recording this the day after the 40th anniversary of Boom Boom Mancini's 14th round knockout and, of Dooku Kim, and then Dooku Kim fell into a coma and died a few days later. And that really changed the course in boxing. Before I continue with Jesus' question, that led to the WBC... Shortening world title fights From 15 rounds to 12 rounds Which was followed up by the WBA In 1987 and the IBF In 1988 since September 1st 1988 there have been no 15 round title fights Now I'm a proponent of the 15 round title fight you know, I'm an old bastard I, To me a real world champion Should go 15 rounds but Safety wise I understand why it's Happened and I don't know what the stats show, what the what the overall impact of the of fights going down from fifteen to twelve rounds has been, but if you really want to look at it, at first I was bitching and moaning, but now years later I look back at it and I'm like, for safety, for safety precautions, for safety reasons, shorten it to twelve rounds, I guess. Made more sense. I'm just so damn old school. But three rounds less of trauma on a man's brain per title fight. Maybe it's the reason why a lot of fighters had prolonged careers. Maybe if Floyd Mayweather had to fight 15 rounds, he wouldn't have been as long as the top as he was compared to 12-round fights. Same thing with Manny Pacquiao. Would he have had such a great career? Had it, had he had to fight fifteen round fights and not twelve round fights, so uh, I could see the argument, and I'm not going to argue. It, it it hindsight being 2020, and ladies and gentlemen, 40 years ago, I bitched and moaned when they made the decision. Um, it looked like the WBC made the right decision, and the WBA and IBF followed up five and six years later. Now, how did it affect Ray Mancini's career? Hey, Seuss. Boom Boom was never the same after he knocked out a Dooku Kim. First and foremost, he took a lot of punishment in that fight. For, and and I, I always knew, because my father told me when we first saw Boom Boom Mancini on network television in 1980, that his aggressive brawling style was not conducive to a long career because my father always told me, when you have a style like that, you take unnecessary punishment. And little by little, you lose yourself, you lose more of yourself and you're done by the age of 30. Mancini was done by the age of 25 He lost two brutal fights to to livingston bramble after dooku kim in which he took an enormous amount of punishment Then came back for two Pathetic pathetic uh Comeback fights against Hector Camacho in the worst fight i've ever seen in my lifetime and then Greg Haugen, both fights he lost. So, um, I'm trying to think after Duku Kim, how many fights did he win? I know he beat Orlando Romero. And that was a brutal mismatch. He lost, he lost his title June first, 1984. Off the top of my head, ladies and gentlemen, Livingston Bramble lost the rematch a year later. Retired in 1985. Came back in 1989 to face. Camacho lost that fight in a brutal fight in which Camacho ran and held and ran and held. It was just horrible. Um, I thought Mancini won that fight, to be honest with you, but it wasn't like he, he, neither guy, neither guy showed anything in that fight. And then a couple of years later, later he came back and lost to Greg, Hound, Greg Haugen, Greg Halgen. and that was the end of what turned out to be a Hall of Fame career. He's in the Hall of Fame. And I'm not going to argue whether or not he belongs in, because if you look at up until the duku Kim fight, the only loss he had up until the duku Kim fight was, and he gave an incredible performance against one of the greatest fighters of all time, and Alexis Arguello. He gave Arguello hell for the first 10 rounds before Arguello figured him out and beat the hell out of him before knocking him out in the 14th round. So, uh, yes, Jesus, his career was never the same after he uh accidentally killed dooku kim in the ring all right another question here let me see all right for my man in tech intellectual violence on twitter and he asked Thoughts. Heyman been getting called out frequently later. Heyman getting called out frequently later. Lately. Lately. Al Heyman has been called out. This all stems from the Errol Spence, Terrence Crawford debacle. Fight that never happened. Like I said before. uh, Intellectual. Um, and and if you've heard the podcast before, you know you know about a couple of weeks ago I did a rant on Errol and Terrence. I blame both parties equally. You got a lot of guys on social media who are taking sides. I don't fucking take sides when it comes to negotiation. Get the fight done. Let's stop this bullshit, all right. I I equally hold to the fire both Al Heyman and Terrence Crawford's advisors. Because if you ask me, if Terrence Crawford and Errol Spence got in a room together and shake hands, they'll fight. Fight is fight. And nobody's scared of anybody. I keep telling you clowns on social media, neither guy's afraid of either guy. Right? One guy got shot in the head and almost died. Another guy got ejected from his car while driving and fell face first to the concrete floor and almost died. And when he hit, you survived those two near fatalities in your life? You're not scared of any other man inside the ring. It's bullshit. Al Heyman, in my opinion, is the most powerful man in boxing. All right, being called out, Al Heyman is the greatest concert promoter in my entire lifetime. Al Heyman knows how to make money. Al Heyman has made huge money for Floyd Mayweather, Errol Spence. The list goes on. He dropped the ball and getting his this fight as did Terrence Crawford and his people period end of story and as far as being called out lately Adrian Broner left Al Heyman. He did Al Heyman a favor because Al Heyman was giving him a monthly salary and what was Broner doing? Getting high and getting fucking drunk every fucking month not doing anything Adrian Broner has never been the same since Marcos Madonna beat the shit out of him almost a decade ago and he's been living off He's been living off His potential That was never That was never Never Fully accomplished Okay See if I have any other questions Yeah I do have questions on the um Nice guy, Eddie's got a question in long, long Tran. Let's see now. Let me go to Long Tran first. Long Tran, long-time listener. He's been listening to me from other platforms for damn near a decade now. Long Tran asks, Rob, here, here is my next question on boxing. Two parts. First part, Rob, as a boxing expert and historian, what are your top five tips for up-and-coming boxers? For example, get a good promoter, hire a good trainer, etc. cetera. Well, you answer two of them. Definitely get a good promoter. If I was a fighter coming out of the amateurs right now, now, if I was Oscar De La Hoya, well, you'll never see another Oscar De La Hoya, a Sugar Ray Leonard type come out the amateurs. First of all, they abolished Olympic boxing. You may never see another Olympic uh, box uh, 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 competition again in, in the Olympics when it comes to amateur boxing. Right, so you're not going to have that cachet to start your pro career off. If, if When, when Shakur Stevenson turned pro, he was being romanticized, romanced, not romanticized, romanced by both Floyd Mayweather pro- Promotions and Bob Arum. He wound up signing with Bob Arum. I'd get a good manager. Hey, I'd get a good manager, but good promoter. If you are that good, do like uh Boots Ennis has done most of his career. Be a free agent. Do what uh Alexander Yusick has done. Most of uh, most of his career. Be a free agent. You can fight whoever you want to. If you tie it to a fighter, you see what's happening with the careers of Tank Davis, what happened with Gary Russell. When you tie it to one promoter and you are obligated to fight just those guys from that promotion and you don't go outside and fight other fighters. I don't, I don't like that. Terrence Crawford was handcuffed for years, being under the top rank uh, banner. Now, it works out for Shakur Stevenson because at with top rank, he can now fight the Lomachenko's and the Devin Haney's of the world, which is probably going to be his uh, his next big fight, because he'll without a doubt fight the winner of Lomachenko versus Haney. But and this is this this will answer another question that Jesus Salas had asked me: uh, the thoughts of a tank, I mean of a Stevenson versus Isaac. Pitbull Cruise fight because the WBC ordered it as a as an eliminator. That fight's not going to happen. Because Bob Arum and PBC are not going to get together, Isaac Cruz, PBC fighter, and make that fight. It's not happening. The WBC can order all these mandatories. The promoters are not going to get together or these eliminators. The promoters are not going to get together and make the fight. So long Tran, back to the to my answer to your question. Good promoter good manager good trainer well not good promoter be a free agent forget the good pro- if you're that good be a, be a free agent excellent trainer you can't go wrong with the Derek James or the or, or or the sugar hills of the world uh Virgil Hunter is a little bit on the the downside so I wouldn't go with him he's I don't think he's Great for an up and coming young fighter anymore. But you know, the Sugar Hills, the 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 Derek James, Frank Martin's under Derek James, and you'll see the difference when he fights Mitchell Rivera in, a, in in a month. Uh so good trainer, good 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 uh free agent fight for any promotion, good management. People have been criticizing Jay Prince recently, but if you look at the three biggest fighters that Jay Prince has ever managed. Floyd Mayweather, Shakur Stevenson, Andre Ward. Not a single loss among those three fighters and all three have did have done very well. Floyd's the highest paid fighter. Now, I know he started making that after he left Jay Prince, but Jay Prince put him in that position to get that big deal with Al Heyman and PBC. Okay, so what are other two tips... For, oh, okay. Do not drink. Never use, never touch alcohol, never touch marijuana, never touch any type of recreational drug. Imagine how great Pernell Whitaker and Aaron Pryor would have been. Great to her. How greater they would have been had they never indulged in alcohol and cocaine. Or in Aaron Pryor and Pernell Whitaker, eventually they became crack addicts, and both men died young. Pernell, fifty-five. Aaron Pryor died somewhere between the ages of fifty-nine and sixty-one. I mean, I know they were clean for several years after their addiction, but that drug abuse not only ruined the end of their careers. It also put a limit as to how long they would live. Now, I know Purnell died in a crazy accident, and probably got sick, but years of drug abuse couldn't have helped definitely didn't help and it now they're both in my top ten fighters I've ever seen, but you you could have been they they could have been battling for number one. Had neither guy, uh, indulged, had neither man, had neither fighter indulged in recreational drugs and alcohol. Uh, I mentioned Adrian Broner earlier, known alcoholic, known alcoholic. He drinks all the time, and look at, look at what happened to his career. That man, that man had unlimited potential. So, ladies and gentlemen, je- um, long trend and ladies and gentlemen that's number four so we've got free agent as a boxer great uh trainer great management clean living clean living and my fifth tip for an up-and-coming young pro boxer healthy living leave the the sugars alone leave uh, cookies cakes uh Eat healthy You'll make weight And you'll have more stamina The more sugar you add to your diet The less stamina you have in the ring Gotta give credit to Floyd Mayweather Floyd Mayweather never drank Never used drugs Didn't And didn't partake in Any sugars When you watch Check out all his old HBO 24-7 clips All right when he eats he eats healthy so those are my five tips for up-and-coming fighters now you have a second part of your question and it goes what are what are your top five things that up-and-coming boxers should focus on their training for example train the jab better footwork better cardio etc well you got the you got the top three right there no jab no success Everything. If you notice, if you've been listening to me on my various boxing podcasts over the last 11 years, and I've done three of them. I've always, always focused on a fighter's jab, because if you look at the greatest fighters in the history of boxing, they all had great jabs. Thomas Hearns, Sugar Ray Leonard, Muhammad Ali, Larry Holmes, Sugar Ray Robinson, Archie Moore, Ezra Charles. Without a great jab, you're not going to be a great fighter. Period. Footwork is definitely needed, especially if you want to be a great defensive fighter, like a Floyd Mayweather, like a Shakur Stevenson, like a Willie Pep, like a Pernell Whitaker, like a James Tony. Footwork is necessary. Roberto Duran, one of the greatest inside defensive fighters of all time. Footwork is King Manny Pacquiao with all the angles. He used to give fighters when he was coming at you Made you dizzy like a goddamn Tasmanian devil Footwork is huge huge Better cardio, of course you needed stamina. I mean we're not fighting 15 round fights anymore, but 12 rounds is not a walk in the park, right? I mentioned earlier in the podcast, Sonny Edwards. Sonny Edwards, phenomenal stamina, and he's always moving, always giving angles. 12th round, he's as fresh as he was in the first round. Floyd, another perfect example. Never saw Floyd get tired in a fight. So, yeah, you got definitely the jab, better footwork, better cardio. Number four, body work. When you hurt a fighter, I get upset whenever I see A fighter Stagger another fighter And they go head hunting Body Go to the body Because they're not protecting their body The guy you got hurt Is protecting their head Focus more on body punching Huge focus for uh, Up and coming fighters And fifth and final For up and coming boxers Is Stay active if you're a new fighter, if you're a just come, if you just turn pro out the amateurs, fight six to eight times a year at least at a minimum. Don't get into the habit of guys like Gary Russell now. Jared Anderson is following it, where you're fighting one or two times a year, at most. No, no, that stunts your growth as a fighter. All right, ladies and gentlemen. That's the end of the question and answer session. Now we're going to go on to my 16th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. And that's James Lights Out Tony. And the article begins, There haven't been too many fighters in the history of boxing that combined ability, charisma, and a personal story greater than James Tony. Tony was one of the nation's top high school quarterbacks in the mid-1980s while while attending Huron High School in Ann Arbor, Michigan. While starring on his high school football squad, he also had a side hustle selling crack cocaine. Tony was a very volatile athlete who didn't adhere to team, rule, team rules. Instead of attending Western Michigan on a football scholarship, Tony instead turned to boxing. After a brief amateur career, Tony turned pro in 1988 at the age of 20, resulting in a sensational career in which, he made huge, in which he made a huge impact at middleweight, super middleweight, cruiserweight, and heavyweight for two decades before languishing as a well past his prime fighter in his, eight, in his 40s. Despite the last decade of his career, which was filled with less than stellar performances, Tony still achieved enough to be the 16th greatest fighter. Of the last 45 years Tony stayed extremely busy Fighting 26 times in two and a half years With the only blemish being a draw Of longtime 160 pound trial horse Sandaline Williams A fighter he would eventually defeat In a rematch In his 27th bout Tony received a shot at the IBF And lineal 160 pound champion Michael Nunn Going into the fifth offense Of his IBF world title on May 10, 1991 versus a then virtually unknown Tony, Nunn was considered no worse than the second best fighter in the world. Nunn had dominated the 160-pound division for the three years prior and had hired legendary trainer Angelo Dundee in an effort to heighten his marketability to casual boxing fans. Nunn was a huge 20-to-1 favorite over Tony in a fight that would take place in Nunn's hometown of Davenport, Iowa. At the time my father and I were watching this fight Neither one of us had ever heard of Tony Yes he had a shiny undefeated record But we had never seen him fight And we speculated that he wasn't as good as his lofty record suggested For the first seven rounds he proved us right Tony followed none around the ring and missed a ton of shots While Nunn moved and controlled the fight with his swift right, dre- with his swift right jab After seven rounds Tony needed a knockout to win. Rounds 8 to 10 saw Tony finally begin to land what the announcers claimed was his signature punch, the right cross. None was visibly showing signs of fatigue, but had yet to stop moving. A minute into round 11, Tony was landing his right cross more and more. Then, all of a sudden, with a little more than over a minute left in the round... Nunn walked into a spectacular left hook by Tony. Nunn hit the canvas like he had been shot by an assault rifle. My father and I were shocked to see None actually get up at the count of nine on very rubbery legs. Referee Dennis Nelson allowed the fight to continue, but None was done. Tony chopped the listless Nunn down with three straight bombs. As soon as Dun- Nunn went down again, Dundee threw in the towel. A new star in boxing was born. Eager to fight the very best in the division that was talent-laden in 1991, Tony signed to fight the WBA 160-pound champion Mike McCollum to unify their titles. Unfortunately, the WBA stripped McCollum of his version of the middleweight title. Nevertheless, the boxing world was in accord. The real winner would be considered the real middleweight champion of the world. The fight ended in a controversial draw. Tony would win the rematch on August 29, 1992, and after one last defense at 160 pounds, he would move up to 168. On February 13, 1993, Tony, undefeated in 35 fights, challenged IBM super middleweight champion Ayn Rand Barkley. My father was a fan of Barkley's brawling style, but he agreed with me that his style was tailor-made for the defensive and boxing acumen of Tony. Tony was one of the greatest defensive fighters and counterpunchers of all time. What made Tony's style so special and unique is that he stayed right in front of you. He was a master boxer who didn't dance and move around. He gave his opponent incredible—he gave his opponents—he gave his opponents, he gave his op- opponents incredible head movement—and was the master of the shoulder roll years before before Floyd Mayweather ever utilized it. Expertly taught by his trainer, Bill Miller, Tony embarrassed Barkley with this style. It was a virtuoso performance that ended after the ninth round as Barkley quit in his corner. During the post-fight interview with Larry Merchant, Tony became the first athlete ever to shout out hip-hop acts as he gave shout outs to Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. The next 21 months would show Tony excelled both on the mic and in the ring. After successfully defending his title against Tony Thornton in several non-title wins, Tony's next significant fight was on March 5, 1994 against unbeaten contender Tim Littles. Littles was a slick boxer with blinding hand speed. Because of his hand speed, Littles gave Tony fits through the first two rounds. Late in the third round, Tony dropped Littles with his signature right cross. Littles survived, but not before engaging in a headbutt that opened a huge gash above Tony's left eye. Tony, unaware whether the referee called the cut from a butt, fought with with incredible urgency in the fourth round, dropping littles three times before referee Pat Russell stopped the fight. Tony was on a roll, and the roll continued in his next defense of his 168-pound title. Tony's next and last successful defense occurred on July 29, 1984, against former world light heavyweight champion Prince Charles Williams. Williams was a durable, tough fighter who would wear his opponents down before finishing them them off late in the fight. The first five rounds might as well have been fought in a phone booth as both men banged away at each each other's bodies. Williams was ahead on the scorecards after five rounds, but he was already beginning to tire. Beginning in the sixth round, Tony began to gain separation and land his accurate counter right crosses at will. It was a one-sided second half of the fight that came to a violent end in the 12th and final round. Tony landed a spectacular right cross that had Williams knocked out before he hit the canvas. After he landed that right, Tony looked at his right like it was a gun that had just shot a fatal blow. After this highlight of a knockout, Tony called out Roy Jones. At this point in time, Tony was considered by many experts as the best fighter in the world, while Jones was no less than third. The fight would take place on November 18th, 1994. Despite two of the best fighters on the planet facing each other, the fight failed to deliver the fireworks fans expected. Tony was incredible in the press tour, calling Roy every name in the book while Roy was unusually stoic. For some unfathomable reason, Tony had to lose several pounds before the weigh-in to make 168 pounds. Needless to say, Tony gave a lethargic performance that night in losing his super middleweight and pound for pound title to Jones. More on that fight in a later article on Jones. This was this was to be Tony's swan song at 168. Tony moved up to 175, and twice was the victim of horrendous robberies at the hands of Montel Griffin. In both fights, Tony outboxed the KG Griffin and incredulously came out losing. The second egregious loss cost him a rematch with Roy Jones. On May 14, 1997, Tony lost a very close decision to the unheralded journeyman, Drake Dodsey. After one last fight at cruiserweight a month later, Tony inexplicably went on a two-year layoff. When he resumed his boxing career in the spring of 1999, Tony, now 30, looked rejuvenated as he began his quest to become cruiserweight champion. Tony railed off 10 straight wins at cruiserweight before gaining a shot on April 26, 2003 against the best cruiser in the world, the IBF champion Vasily Girov. The 29-year-old Kazakhstani Girov won a gold medal at the 1996 Summer Olympics and was a highly skilled pressure fighter. Add to the fact that Girov was also softball, this was going to be an extremely difficult challenge for the 34-year-old Tony. However, I felt Tony had a a legitimate shot at defeating Giroff because of his relaxed style of fighting in which he utilized his arms and shoulders to fend off punches. His body was positioned so that he was always set to throw his signature right cross. In the first round against Giroff, Tony did just that and landed several right crosses while keeping the fight in the middle of the ring. Round two saw Giroff put a ton of pressure on Tony, and the majority of the rounds saw Tony trapped against the ropes. Doing his best to defend against the fusillade of punches attempted by Giroff. Tony controlled the majority rounds, the majority of rounds three and four by keeping the fight in the middle of the ring and countering Giroff's constant pressure with his radar-like right cross. Giroff was, however, landing several shots of his own to Tony's body and hard-to-hit head. Tony put on a textbook display of counter-punching in both rounds five and six. Jiroff continued to mount heavy pressure on Tony and threw punches and punches. This gave Tony several opportunities, whether in the center of the ring or against the ropes, to land one right-hand counter after another. Tony couldn't miss with the right, whether it be straight or an uppercut. Jiroff's consistent shots to Tony's body cost him a point in round eight as he hit Tony one too many times low. Referee Steve Smoker penalized Giroff, which could have been huge because of how close the fight possibly was if it went to a decision. Despite the frantic pace kept up by both fighters, neither one showed any signs of fatigue going into the ninth round. Giroff willed his way into a phone booth with Tony in rounds nine and ten. Both these rounds saw him out-hustle and out-punch Tony as he had Tony pinned against the ropes. Round 11 was another beautiful exhibition of counter-punching as Tony hurt Jiroff with with another razor-sharp right cross and then late in the round with a crisp left hook. My instinct told me round 12 would be one for the ages. It indeed was. The 12th and final round was a riveting display of two men engaged in a slugfest. For the first two minutes, Tony laid up against the ropes and matched Jiroff punch for punch. Then with 45 seconds left, Tony staggered Jiroff with a series of left hooks. Tony finally knocked him down with a clubbing right cross with about 15 seconds left in the fight. Jiroff got up and survived the tittle final bell. Tony won the decision and the title. In my opinion, it was the single greatest performance of his legendary career. Tony, Tony immediately moved up to the heavyweight division, and his next fight faced the legendary Evander Holyfield on October fourth, two 2003. Just 15 days shy of Holyfield's 41st for birthday. I knew that Holyfield was a shot fighter and had no business in the ring, especially against the cagey Tony. Despite being four inches shor- shorter, Tony completely dominated the former undisputed cruiserweight and heavyweight champion before Holyfield's corner threw in a towel midway through the ninth round. This would lead to a shot at WBA heavyweight champion John Ruiz on April 30th, 2005 at the historic Madison Square Garden. Although Tony was a bloated 233 pounds, the heaviest of his career, he completely dominated Ruiz by outfighting the rugged Ruiz inside the pocket the entire 12 rounds. Tony won the decision and temporarily was the WBA heavyweight champion. However, two days later, it was revealed that Tony tr- tr- tested positive for using the banned substance Stanozolo in order to treat his injured shoulder. Tony was stripped of his title, and the fight was changed to a no contest. The fight the, despite the fact that the official decision was changed from the record books, I have always considered Tony a former heavyweight champion. A healthy Tony would have dominated Ruiz every time they stepped into the ring. Despite being in his late 30s, Tony continued to be very competitive in the heavyweight division. A year after his fight against Ruiz, the 37-year-old fought WBC champion Haseen Rockman to a draw in a fight that could have gone either way. Tony was robbed in his next fight against San Peter before getting thoroughly beaten by the Nigerian slugger in the rematch. On July 16, 2008, a month before his 40th birthday, Tony and Rockman fought again. This time, due to a clash of heads that caused a severe cut to Rockman, the fight was stopped in round three and ruled a no contest. Although he would continue to fight on and off for the next nine years before finally retiring in 2017 at the age of 49, Tony was, all, for all intents and purposes, done as a championship contender as he went 7-4 and four in his last 11 fights. James' Tony career record at the end of his career was 77 Wins 10 losses and 3 draws with 47 knockouts. In the 45 years I've followed the great sport of boxing, Tony is by far the greatest inside defensive fighter I've ever seen. His utilization of the shoulder roll, taught by his teacher and longtime trainer Bill Miller, made him damn near impossible for his opponent to hit him cleanly while inside the trenches. Tony is also one of the greatest counter punches who ever lived. That right cross counter of his was on par with both Juan Manuel Marquez and Floyd Mayweather's. Tony ducked no one and fought everyone who dared to step in the ring with the technical master. With all of these accolades, he accomplished doing a a nearly 30-year career. It is easy to see why he's the 16th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you guys enjoyed another edition of the Pound for Pound podcast. This is your host, the original great Rob Silver, saying until next week, be blessed.